This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Better Reading acknowledges the traditional custodians on whose land our office stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Cheryl Arkell from Better Reading. The idea for this podcast came to me from trying to find books to read to my great-nephews. As regular listeners know, I'm from a Lebanese background, and to my surprise, it was difficult finding books where I felt that they could see themselves in the story. It got me thinking about how many Australians must feel like this. Why is there still a lack of diversity in children's books? Why? Late in 2019, Better Reading was awarded a grant from the Copyright Agency to produce a six-part series on diversity in children's writing. At the time, we could not have predicted what 2020 would bring. I now understand more than ever how little I know and how important these conversations are. This series by no means contains all the answers, but I hope it opens up more conversations. I personally have learned a great deal talking to these guests. At times, it was uncomfortable. At times, I wasn't quite sure what I meant or was saying. Afterwards, I've taken the time to reflect on many of the issues my guests discussed. I look forward to learning more. I hope you enjoy our conversation on diversity in children's writing. Maxine Beniba-Clark, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to bits, actually, because I've known about your career. I've been aware of you for a very long time. I see you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, but I I very rarely participate because it scares the living daylights out of me. (laughs) But... (laughs) I do follow you and many others. I've also been a great admirer of your career. So I'm going to introduce you. Maxine is a widely published Australian writer of Afro-Caribbean descent. Maxine's short fiction, non-fiction and poetry have been published in numerous publications and her critically acclaimed short fiction collection, Foreign Soil, won the Arbia Award for Literary Fiction Book of the Year 2015 and the 2015 Indie Book Award for David fiction and was shortlisted for the Matt Ritchell Award for New Writing at the 2015 Arbias and the 2015 Stella Prize. I mean, oh my God, we're going to talk about how you came to writing and how you, you know, overnight success or maybe not overnight success. <laughs> um, Maxine was also named as one of the Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Novelists for 2015. The Hate Race, a powerful memoir about growing up black in Australia, won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, Multiculturalism, um, in 2017 and was shortlisted for an Arbia and Indie Award, the Victorian Premier's Literary Award and the Stella Prize. The Patchwork Bike, Maxine's first picture book, with Van Rudd was a CBCA on a book for 2017. I mean, what a career, right? <laughs> How did you come to writing? Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, there's that notion of the the overnight success, but, it, you know, it's never really true, is it? People don't Ever. really see the lead up. So I actually, I did study writing at university. I did a, a creative writing degree and I was did it kind of as a double degree with something else at the time really thinking, you know, I would love to write, but it's very rare that one can actually make money and make make a career out of writing. And so kind of 
studied primarily poetry and fiction in this creative writing degree and then finished university and at that time, kind of late 90s to early 2000s, writing degrees in Australia didn't seem to be very career oriented. So you learnt a lot about the craft, but kind of came out saying, well, how do I send a letter to an editor? How do I find a publisher? I had no idea how the industry worked. So I just kind of took a job in my other profession and wrote along the side and, and found myself falling into the spoken word community which was taking off at the time. I was living in Sydney at the time. And so entered a few what they call poetry slams, where you kind of have between two and three minutes, depending on the competition, to perform your work. And that was really how I started delivering work to the public initially was poetry at the microphone. But that's even scarier than writing because you're, you're, it's a performance as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I often say that's why I feel like I'm fairly brutal about my own work in terms of editing it and slashing and burning. And I think that for me, it's the most vicious editing ground ever because you've got two minutes, you have a piece of writing and a room full of people and you can see if they're not engaged within 10 seconds, you know, you can see it on their faces or they won't be paying attention or, and so, you know, you'd then take the poem and take it home. Well, what did I do wrong? How can I change this? Should I throw it in the bin or you know, how do I actually adapt this so that it can work for an audience? Where did you grow up? Whereabouts in Sydney? Grow I grew up in Sydney in yeah. the Hills District in a suburb yeah. called Kellyville. Um, I know it. Yeah, yeah very different now to what it was when I grew up. Mm. So when I grew up, it was kind of the rural fringe of Sydney. Mm. Um, so it was a, a village, essentially. And, you know, there was always the joke on my school bus that, you know, the Kellyville bus, never get on the Kellyville bus because you won't come back kind of thing. <laughs> now it's suburban sprawl, really. But, uh, uh, you know, back in the day, the end of our street went on to market gardens and creeks and, and things like that. So... Would you say in terms of growing up black in Australia, and I'm asking you this question in terms of primary school because I'm older than you, so it would have been different then, but I'm a Lebanese Australian. And growing up as a non-Australian in primary school, I was definitely the odd one out. Did you feel that way in primary school? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, my parents were essentially black British migrants. So they were both born in the Caribbean, in Jamaica and Guyana, and they moved to England when they were very small children, kind of kindergarten age. So they grew up in London and then they migrated here in the mid-70s. And my dad was a, an academic, so he took a job at a university. And, yeah, it was very strange. At the time, Kellyville was a very white area. I have this picture of me in preschool and people say to me really surely there must have been some diversity and I have this picture of preschool and there's this class of 20 kids and of the 20 kids there's kind of 17 blonde haired kids two brown haired kids and me mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was the kind of environment um, and it's something that I have in my memoir The Hate Race and also in my kids book Wide Big World talked about this idea of what happens I guess when you have someone who doesn't quite fit in in that kind of environment. How aware of it were you? Because when I think back to starting primary school, I was born here, but my parents came and went. And when I started, I actually couldn't speak English. I could not speak a word of English. And 
that wasn't my problem. I, I mean, my trauma and memory around that is not the language. It's just that I was so different to the other children. Mm. And I remember wanting to change my name to Belinda because I wanted to see <laughs> Anglo. Did you have those feelings? I mean, I, I guess you had the benefit of speaking. such a name of the day. It was kind of Belinda Kylie Kelly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and no, I mean, I think the strange thing about my experience was, so this was a, you know, I'm first generation Australian, but my parents yes. were first kind of, they were born in the West Indies, but they're kind of first generation black British. And so by the time we get to Australia, the only difference really between myself or my family and our neighbours was the colour of our skin. So we were atheists. You know, we didn't have a different religion. We didn't even really eat differently. You know, my mum would occasionally cook West Indian foods or spicy curries or something like that. So for me, it wasn't really until I went to school without my parents, so outside of that kind of visiting friends with family, that people pointed at me and said, you're different, you're not like us, that I actually, I mean, obviously I knew that I looked different, but I didn't attach any kind of specific meaning to that. Looking back, there were microaggressions everywhere, you know, when you're out shopping with your mum and you're the last family in the line to be served and those kinds of things. But I think I was too young at the time. And it wasn't until I went to school that I thought, oh, okay, this is a thing. You know, this is something that I'm actually going to have to carry for my whole life. I mean, I feel as though we've come a long way in so many ways. I mean, a long, long way. But we have so much more to do, um, particularly in terms of, of writing and books, and not just for children's books. I think it's right across the board. I want to start with you and your career. When did you decide that this is it this is going to be me this is going to be full-time and I'm going to be a writer Um, a decision or is it something you kind of fell into no I was I think it was very much a decision you know I was always I'd started out with a spoken word and then eventually what happened when I moved to Melbourne that community or that scene was absolutely taking off at that time and so I'd start to have editors email me or or come up to me at these events and say will you give us a poem to to publish and so that's kind of how it started I'd been wanting to publish things for a while but just hadn't quite known how to go about it and then really wrote exclusively poetry for about seven or eight years published a few books with a very small poetry publisher And that came about because I entered a competition. It was called Poetry Idol. (laughs) (laughs) And it was... Makes poetry sound popular. (laughs) And it was very funny. It was run through the local library system. So you'd have heats at local libraries and then those would turn into kind of city heats. And then the final was at the Malthouse Theatre at Melbourne Writers' Festival. And the prize was a book deal, which was what, you know, every poet wants. It's very hard to get poetry published in Australia. And it was with a very tiny publisher, Picaro Press, who actually aren't around anymore. And so I entered this competition and I wasn't that familiar with the rules of this particular competition. And so I ended up performing a poem at the final that I'd already performed in one of the heats. And they kind of said, well, you've been disqualified. I thought, oh, no, you've got to be joking. You know, what a way to go out. And then the morning after I rang the publisher 
And I said, I was in this competition, a lot of bravado at the time. I said, I was in this competition last night. I said, I got disqualified. I said, but they made a really big mistake. You know, you should be publishing my book. (laughs) And the guy at the other end kind of paused like this person is (laughs) a little bit unbalanced. And then he said, "Um, look, I've got, you know, to tell me a bit about your work. So I kind of said, you know, started out as a spoken word and told me a bit about my background. And he said, look, I've got to catch a bus in 10 minutes. Read me something. Read me a couple of poems. And so that's how I got my first book out. I read him a couple of poems. And he said, yeah, this is great. You know, send me a manuscript and we'll put something out. And this sounds like a kind of dream run. But at the time, I didn't realise Picaro Press was one man in his shed in Warners Bay in New South Wales, putting out these tiny little poetry collections. But that was enough for me at the time. And then kind of moved from there into, okay, maybe I, my poems started to get more narrative. So I thought maybe I'll try short fiction, which is the, the time in which I wrote Foreign Soil, uh, my short fiction collection. With your reading growing up, did you, I, you know, I loved reading and I was a voracious reader, but I never saw myself in anything anything. I mean, there was never any representation of being a non-Australian in any of the books that I read, you know, and I still love them, but I wasn't there. And then I read Looking for Alabrandi. Oh Mm. my God. It changed me in such a huge way because I thought, oh, I could be Josie. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment for you? Because, I mean, what were you reading? My, my parents did try very hard to get black kids' books when we were small. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult because, of course, you didn't, the internet wasn't a thing. So it was really asking relatives, can you come? And, or sometimes my dad would go on kind of academic trips, you know, overseas or something, and, and then he'd come back with books. But primarily, you know, when I was a small child, I was reading Possum Magic and The Tram mm-hmm. to Bondi Beach and The Tiger Who Came to Tea and, and Mr. Magnolia. Um, and what everyone, every other kid really was reading at that time. We had a few books that I remember very distinctly. One was called Liza Lou and the Yellow Belly Swamp. And it was this book about this little African-American girl who's seemed to be a single parent household. She kind of lived just with her mum on the edge of this swamp and her mum did various things for people as work. So she'd taken people's washing or she'd bake them pies or, and she had to run the errands. So she had to ferry the washing back and forth. But through this swamp, there were all these creatures. Like there was a swamp witch that would kind of boil up little children if she found them. And there was <laughs> this creature called a gobbledygook who was kind of this, <laughs> looked like a ghost with fur almost, and she had to outsmart them. So every time she went into the swamp to do an errand, she'd have to outsmart one of these creatures. And I just read that book over and over and over again. And the funny thing was when, when my daughter was born, I thought I need to find a copy. I think I lent it to somebody and never got it back. So I looked, looked it up and I'd assumed that the author's name is Mercer Mayer, uh, M-E-R-C-E-R, M-A-Y-E-R, and I kind of envisaged this to be kind of a wise old African-American woman and later found out that it was a white man, I think potentially a Jewish man, who'd just kind of written this book in the 60s that had been a massive hit about this little black girl going into this swamp. But I remember the language in that book. So, you know, for example, when Liza Lou's mum would address her, yeah. 
start with, you know, honey dumpling, will you take these clothes across the river? You know, she had these kind of really fond particular way of addressing her. And instead of calling the clothes that they were washing church clothes, they called them Sunday go-to-meeting finery. <laughs> and so there were all of these kind of just amazing descriptions um, that I remember in this book. And looking back, I think it was quite extraordinary for that person to create a book like that at that particular time. Um, and did you find it and did you read it to your child? Yeah, I did. I did. I kind of bought it anyway and, and read it and I thought this this still holds up. Yeah. You know, it's still kind of after all those years, I, I thought, oh, no, maybe I'll order it and I'll read it and I'll think, oh, this is terrible. Why did yeah. I love this book? Because um, it's that whole conversation with cultural appropriation, isn't it? Mm, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, there is the issue of clearly it would have been extremely difficult for an African-American woman to get that book published in the late 60s. Mm. Um, So there are all these questions there. But for me, it was kind of there was a black girl in the picture book and that's Mm. why I loved it. And that's all that mattered, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's the power of story too, Mm. you know. If you get that story right, it's it's just pure magic, isn't it? So children's books are vital, I think, for for well-being for young people. I mean, reading is vital and it's also about exploring identity where do you think we're at in in what kids are reading now in terms of diversity do you have a view on that there's a long way to go still I think that there has been a lot of change which is important to acknowledge but I still don't think what we see on the shelves um what we see on the street and I think you know when I was in my mid-teens books like Sally Morgan's My Place or Melina Marchetta's Looking for Ella Brandy were huge because, you know, they came along and it was a phenomenon. It was kind of like, where did this person come from? You know, (laughs) we're everywhere. Mm. But, uh, yeah, at the time it was very rare. And I think, I do think picture books, they also have a really long way to go in Australia. I think the conversation is miles ahead in the States and even potentially in the UK than it is here. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's partly publishing. Yeah. You know, the fact that the people making the decisions, the people reading the manuscripts, the people deciding whether this is saleable, ostensibly most of them come from the same background. I think despite the fact that we think of writing as an art form, there are all of those decisions about will this book sell if 80% of the market, or if they consider that 80% of the market are Anglo-Australian families, why would we publish this book? And I think often publishers undersell their readers or under underestimate their readers. You know, they underestimate the fact that readers, the reason they're picking up a book is because they're open to whatever story is in the book. And that reading is one of the ways that we experience the world. You know, not everyone can travel. Not everybody lives in a diverse town. You know, if you live in a rural area or, or something like that. And so that's the way that we learn we learn about the world, you know, mm. I think as human beings, it's the way we first learn about the world. Often it's just, if you put it on the shelf, people will be interested. Mm. Uh, I agree. That decision to put it there. Mm, I agree. I agree. It's about the strength of the story. So be brave mm. and just put them all out there. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Stories with diverse themes such as race, um, LGBT, are important for children in terms of identity. But these stories are also important for all children because reading these stories helps develop empathy. And also I feel as these stories shouldn't be cause stories, that diversity should just be in the book as a matter of fact. You know, it shouldn't be that we have a black child and it's a black child's dilemma about going to school. It should be that the black child is a hero. She's doing whatever he's, any, any other kid is doing. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I do think that there's, there's room for both. But, yeah, definitely I think one of my frustrations is when most of the books you read that have black kids in them are about blackness in the sense of, this person is having trouble fitting into the world or is having a problem. I mean, I have written a book like that in Wide Big World, my, my second picture book. My first picture book, The Patchwork Bike, it's about a black family, but essentially it's just about their love of this particular bike that they've constructed. And my third picture book, Fashionista, is just about fashion, but kind of, I guess, incidentally diverse. And I think there is that discussion around, well, I'm a white author, is it my place to to tell a black story? But I think no matter who you are, if all of the characters in the books that you're producing are white, you're saying something to that child. Mm. Um, Whether or not you're saying it intentionally, you're telling them a story in just purely in the, the visibility of the characters that are in the book. And so I think it's important for all picture book authors or illustrators to ask themselves that question. I've been given this text. Why is it I've chosen to make these five characters exactly the same colour? You know, is that something I need to interrogate within myself? Because you're right. It's not reflecting our lives. I mean, it's so rare for that to happen. And I, and I think that's part of the problem is that it does involve an interrogation of the psyche to say, why did I make that decision? Mm-hmm. If these aren't my neighbours, if these aren't the people in the supermarket, if these aren't the people in my kids' classroom, why did I decide to make every single character white, essentially, or, or you know, whether it's white, whether it's heterosexual, whether it's mm-hmm. all of those things? And so I think that's part of the difficulty. As humans, we never like to admit our blind spots. You know, it's, it's partly the gatekeepers, it's partly the producers of the content. You know, books can surprise. Books can surprise people and they can surprise. You often see when publishers take risks on material that is perhaps a little bit more unusual or challenging, they can often pay off. I'm constantly having to or I'm constantly asking myself these questions myself. 
why did I choose not to have any disabled characters in this book? Or why did I choose to write this character a particular way? Or what perspective? And I mean, in essence, you're just telling a story. The answer can be as simple as this is specifically the story I wanted to tell. Um, but whether or not that's the answer, I think it's important to ask the question. Mm, Absolutely. In terms of what we see around us and what children are reading, and I I think we touched on this a little bit, like growing up. I mean, I remember in high school, particularly reading all the classics, Jane Austen, for instance, and there was an emphasis on kind of English literature, if you like, which as a Lebanese Australian, I just didn't ever quite get. I really found it difficult to wonder why people were embroidering in beautiful dresses day in, day out and deciding which suitor is going to come to the door. That was very separate to the life I knew and to the history I knew of my family, which was Mm. so. So it's important that what we're reading at school is a reflection of our community as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, um, I think one of the biggest surprises so far in my career was Foreign Soil, my short fiction collection, being put on the VCE Year 12 syllabus for Victoria. And that opened up really, I hadn't done much work inside classrooms, partly because at that stage, I, when it got put on the list, I only had one picture yeah. book. And I thought my adult content is probably not, you know, it's adult content. I just hadn't thought of it as for teenagers. But I think the interesting thing about, you know, I've probably visited about 50 classrooms in the last three years with that book, talking to literature students in Victoria. And it's not just, I mean, obviously, if you're a student, I think of myself having the ability to read the short fiction collection that's full of African diaspora characters and set kind of, you know, in Australia, in the UK, in in the States, you know, all over the world. And I think, yes, that would have been validating to my experience. You know, I would have been able to think, oh, this protagonist looks like me and their grandma's like my grandma and all those kinds of things. But obviously in Australia, the majority of the classroom is not African diaspora. So it also would have meant it almost more to me to see my classmates studying a book that had people like me in it. This idea that, oh, this book is for children of colour. You know, white kids won't be able to understand it, won't relate to it. And, you know, one of the most interesting things has been, you know, I was at Melbourne Writers Festival doing a school session and this group of boys came up to me and they said, oh, we studied your book, Foreign Soil, for VC. And they said, we're from the country and we've never, ever met people like the people in your book. And we just loved it you know the world that it opened up to us and I, and I suppose if you're that kid that's in the middle of the country that's never you know never encountered a you know a Sudanese Australian on the streets of Footscray or thought about well what's life like in Jamaica in 1949 or those kinds of things and I think you know we need to value the importance of education as well as validation that every child will get something out of this book and I think worry that the idea of diversity or quotas can be seen as, well, this is a special interest project. So, of course, we'll all read this and we'll, we'll talk about multiculturalism, but it's not real literature. And I think there are so many great writers from all different backgrounds in Australia. And, and it's just a travesty that a lot of them are just not, will remain undiscovered. Yeah. In a way, I mean, I'm a person that believes in quotas on all levels because I think 
it's why we still are having the diversity conversation now and today. Like I think if we don't put quotas into play, and let's just use an example of boards, you know, organisation, if we don't say that they have to have, you know, 50% women, 50% men, it's not going to happen because it's the men, the 100% men that are hiring them at the moment. So until you get that system in place, then you've got the freedom then you've got women there that are that don't need quotas to select people like them or and i feel the same with literature a little bit that it's it's in a way it's disappointing that we're still talking about this it we should be there but we're not quite there and we need to i think force it a little bit so that in the future the peter careys and the richard flanagans of the world and all those great writers should be the maxine beniba clarks and all this new generation i think of of writers that are coming up you know you guys should be the um the booker prize winners and everything else don't you think i mean i suppose i, ha- I i'm not sure why but i have a discomfort around the word quota yeah and i think I feel like it implies, I I feel like the arts is different from, you know, say quotas in medicine or quotas in, in, you know, something where the qualifications are tangible. Mm. So you can say this black woman has a Harvard education, this white man has a Harvard education, they both have 20 years of experience, why is this woman not being hired? I think it's easier in, in a sense, it's easier in literature or in the arts to block people out because your opinion of whether something's good enough, you know, good enough in inverted commas can be seen as subjective. Like, oh, there's just not that many great writers around. Okay, Um, I'm going to argue this one. Can I argue this one? So mm -hmm. say if you're in a publishing house, Mm -hmm. you've got the publishers and the editors and you're in acquisitions and you're acquiring books. If you imposed a quota, for instance, and maybe it's the wrong word, but it is the word that's known, then what you have to look for in your search for good story is everybody's story, not just the traditional ones that we've been choosing all the time. And until those are chosen and they become popular and they sell because they do, then you're not going to see that happen unless you make a conscious decision to make it happen. Mm. I don't disagree with the idea of quotas. Mm. I just don't think that it necessarily needs to happen at the bottom of the chain. So I think if your publishing house is diverse and you have people who are widely read, who read across all different cultures, who are from all different backgrounds, that will most probably be reflected in your output. And I think agree, it's I agree, yeah. almost kind of counterproductive to say, this team of white editors is now going to look for the best, what they consider to be the best black literature and publish it this year. So I guess what I'm saying is I feel like it's the problem is more deeply entrenched than simply, okay, we need to find more black writers. Editors. Yeah, you've just touched on something then. You know what we need to do? We need to find more diverse editors. Mm. I mean, not just editors, editors, publishers, designers, mm. just publishing in general in Australia is particularly Anglo? Are you getting comparison to the United States or, or, or England? And we need to look at why that is as well. I mean, it's kind of chicken and egg, really. In terms of who's doing it well and the publishers that you know and you've worked with, who do you think is, you know, producing some fantastic diverse literature for children? 
Um, I think Magabala Books is phenomenal and that's a really good example, I suppose, when you're talking about, you know, that idea of either quotas or having a particular mandate to, to publish diverse work. People who are experts in Indigenous fiction, who are working with Indigenous writers, Indigenous illustrators, that might well be the, the way to go, I suppose, is actually diverse publishing houses that have a mandate to look for that particular kind of material. And I think we need to remember that when we grow up and we're reading Jane Austen and we're reading Shakespeare and we're reading this as the English canon, that, you know, Indigenous literature is our canon. You know, they're the first storytellers that were here. So important to engage with that. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you too. What's the next step for Maxine? What are you up to? What are you working um, on? I'm working on a couple more, another picture book. And I'm also working on, I've got so many projects going at the moment. I feel like it's that strange thing where each project is between five and 50% completed, but still a long, far away from, a long way away from being finished. So Foreign Soil has funding to be developed from Screen Australia for television. Wow. Wonderful. Congratulations. Um, so I'm um, trying to work that out at the moment, writing some treatments and things. And The Hate Race, which is my memoir, is being put on probably in 2022, I'd say, at the Malthouse Theatre. So I'm kind Yay. of halfway through writing that, which will probably be a one-person production, kind of act of storytelling. And, yeah, trying to – I've been working away at some adult fiction, which I think is really what everybody's wanting <laughs> – but it's a long way away. Yeah, just kind of a lot of things on the go at once at the moment. It's just been such a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.